So today, <clears throat> we're going to be in uh, Genesis chapter 25, uh, going through verses 1 through 18. And to me, it kind of talks about finishing strong. Now, we're going to be looking at the death of Abraham. And have you given much thought uh, of how you hope to die? And when I ask us how we hope to die, I think what I'm really asking us is, how do we intend to live until we die? What do we want the condition of our minds and our hearts to be when death comes for us? What legacy do we want to leave uh, after we are gone? What would you have written on your gravestone? Tragically for many, the gravestone could read, died age 45, buried age 75. Many people stop living along the way. Uh, they no longer seek all the joy and all the purpose that uh, God has for them. And Abraham, he had many reasons, I think, uh, to fade into the background, you know, and just while the days away, waiting to see maybe his beloved Sarah again. But God's will for us throughout our lives, no matter the setbacks or the trials we face, is to leave live each day to the full for God's glory. And Abraham is an example of someone who lived life to the hilt right up to the end of his life. His biblical geography doesn't even start till uh, he's 75 years old. And his life was one adventure after another for another 100 years after that. And you know, starting strong, not that difficult. But staying strong and finishing strong are much harder. But then isn't that something that we all want to do? We want to finish strong for the Lord? Let us pray. Father, we come before you today with praise and honor for you on our lips. But Lord, we want to be more than just our words to lift you up. We desire that our actions bring you glory as well. Empower us today to live lives that proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. To be the people you have chosen to be set apart from this world, living holy, obedient lives in keeping with your word. Seeking all the days of our lives to do your divine will. No compromise on our parts. Instead, complete surrender to you that flows from thanksgiving and fear. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as I said, our text today is in Genesis 25, and we're going to start reading uh, verses 1 through 18. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Joxem, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Joxan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Ashuram, Ladushim, and Lumen. The sons of Midian were Epaph, Ephr, Hanak, Abida, and Elda. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts, and while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. Now, these are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, 
in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with his wife Sarah After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Laheroi. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Neboeth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kadar, Adbeel, Mipsem, Mishma, Duma, Massa, Hadad, Tema, Jetur, Nephish, and Kedema. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are the names by their villages and by their encampments. Twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died, and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite of Egypt in the direction of Assyria, he settled over against all his kin kinsmen. That's a mouthful with all those names. And I think I said every one of them wrong probably, but that's okay. I flunked Hebrew four times or three times in seminary. <laughs> so here we come to the end of Abraham's story. The scripture tells us that Abraham lived 175 years that he breathed his last breath and died at a good old age. An old man full of years, he was gathered to his people. His sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah near Mamre, in the field of Ephron, son of Zohar the Hittite. He was buried, the Bible tells us, with his wife Sarah. And after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahaina Roy. Now the words here that struck out to me were full of years, out of all those words. The word full carries a meaning of being satisfied. Abraham, I believe, died completely aware of all that God had done for him. He understood that God was the source of everything he owned, everything he was, and everything he believed. If we read in James, uh, uh, chapter 2, verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled. It says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. I think that's what I'd want on my gravestone, a friend of God. A friend of God. One of the very few men who has ever earned that title in the passages of the Bible. He is one of the great universal names of mankind. You can mention the name of Abraham almost any place in the world, and they know who he is. He's a man of great integrity, of heart and purpose, a man of unusual honor and vision, and one of the most faithful men of all time. Yet as we have followed his account uh, through, I hope that you have noticed that Abraham is a man of like passions with us. Though we may honor his character and his moral greatness, nevertheless, Scripture very clearly shows us that he is, a, he is the same makeup as we are. As someone uh, has well said, we are all made from the same mold, but some of us are just a little moldier than others. 
Abraham was poured into the same human mold as we are. He's capable of lying, deceiving, rebelling, blaming others, loving himself, giving in to weakness, and shutting his eyes to truth. Obviously, here's a man no different from us. Without the grace of God, he would, uh, he would or could have never been any different. Just as without the grace of God, we cannot be any different than we are in Adam. Without the grace of God, neither Abraham nor ourselves can accomplish God's will for us. But we seem to have the propensity to take credit when it was God who actually did the work. There's this uh, story I heard a long time ago about this uh, woodpecker that was busy just pecking away at this, this ancient, ancient oak tree, this big old oak tree. And he just worked at it, worked at it, day after day after day, year after year after year. And then one day God sends a lightning bolt down and splits that tree right down the center in about a half a second. Woodpecker runs away, flies away. He comes back, you know, a day later with all his other woodpecker buddies. And he stands there proudly and says, look what I did. See, that's pride. That's where we go sometimes. We take credit for things that actually God did. So why does Scripture give us these closing remarks of Abraham's life? Well, remember that at the very beginning of his life, in a journey from Ur of Chaldeans, he was promised he would become the father of many nations. Through Isaac and Ishmael, the two sons, which, are more, uh, which we are more acquainted, several nations arose. Isaac, of course, became the father of another group of nations. Through Keturah, Abraham's second wife, he had six more sons, who each became the founders of other nations. So God's promise was literally fulfilled that Abraham should be the father of many nations, and through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. I find it interesting that when Sarah died, Abraham was about 125 years old, and after that he took another wife and remarkably had six more sons. And we are told specifically in the scriptures that when Isaac was born, Abraham had long ceased uh, to possess the ability to have children. Both uh, he and Sarah's bodies were dead. Their reproductive powers had ended, and it was by a miracle of grace that Isaac was born. He was a child of promise, and was called a child of faith. You know, conversely, in Adam, uh, we were spiritually dead, incapable of choosing uh, in our own will to become spiritually alive. Couldn't do it. And it takes a miracle of grace to regenerate our dead hearts and cause us to be born again. Children of promise, children of faith. The writer of Hebrews tells us, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. Evidently, when his youthful powers were restored to him in order that he might have Isaac, uh, these continued afterwards and, and these other sons were born uh, to grace his home after Sarah's death. 
So if we add these six sons to Isaac and Ishmael, we learn that Abram had a total of eight sons. You know, what a beautiful picture of the fruitfulness of a man's life. Here in the Old Testament, we see the physical qualities of Abraham's life and compare them, or can't compare them, to a picture of the spiritual realities in our lives. This accounting of the eight children is a wonderful picture of the fruitfulness of life in the spirit. Life lived by faith as Abraham lived his life. In fact, as we obey God's command to preach the gospel, we too, in a, I guess in a metaphorical sense, have eight children or, or many more actually, depending how much you preach the gospel. But we'll just stay with uh, number eight for a minute here. If you turn with me to 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, starting in verse 3, I'd like to share with you where eight marks of a fruitful life are listed. Now, I wonder if it's just coincidence that these marks are equal to the number of Abraham's children. I don't know. You find those things sometimes. In fact, I think this passage in 2 Peter could well be uh, a proper epitaph of Abraham. His whole life summarized here for us beginning with the call of God out of Ur of Chaldeans unto God's own glory and excellence. So let's read, starting in verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Now, Peter begins with faith, of course, the supreme ingredient of spiritual life. This was the great thing about Abraham. He had confidence in God despite the circumstances. And I, and I think, in a way, that's a very simple definition of faith, is having confidence in God despite the circumstances. While, on the other hand, unbelief is believing the circumstances in spite of God. Which do you have? Which one more describes your walk? Giving in to the circumstances and doubting? Or just giving in to God and not doubting? Faith is not taking the circumstances into account when determining some action to be taken. Faith disregards the nature of the test, the nature of the trial, the nature of the circumstance even though that can be pretty disconcerting to us. Faith believes God despite those circumstances. Amen? 2 Corinthians 13 reads, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. What, what Kim read for us today from uh, 1 John, it's pretty clear how we know if we're in the faith. So here's a simple question every believer should be able to answer. 
Am I living out my Christian walk, my faith, being dictated to by circumstances, or am I walking by faith, overcoming circumstances? Easy question. Living in victory, living in the freedom I possess in Christ, crucifying the flesh, carrying my cross to the praise and glory of God. This, my brothers and sisters, is the basis of all contact with God. You and I cannot be Christians. Uh, Let me say that again. You and I cannot be Christians. We cannot live as Christians in any sense without faith, without believing that God knows what he's talking about. We should be eager to appreciate that the Scriptures are the Word of God and that in them God himself is telling us the truth about himself and about life. So now we are then instructed to add to faith a quality of virtue. Some translations render this word uh, moral character. And how greatly we witness this in Abraham, don't we? With courage, he armed his servants and set them out after the great army, which came from the east. With wisdom given him by God, he surrounded their camp and routed the forces of the enemy taking nothing of his own safety in order that he might deliver Lot and the others who had been taken captive. Courage. And again, this is one of the key ingredients of a fruitful Christian life. We should all rejoice when Christ comes to our lives, making us into a godly man and a godly woman. When he fills our hearts with courage and gives us moral character, we should be thankful for that and praise him all day long for that. Then Peter tells us to add Knowledge to virtue. Now there are some who think that Christianity is counter to knowledge. But the Christian attitude towards knowledge is that all is from God and we are to learn and to comprehend whatever he gives us to comprehend. But the secrets of knowledge are not to be found in any human textbook, so don't go look in there, don't go look in any self-help books. Don't go listen to those so-called preachers that are just talking self-help textbooks. But only in the book of God, in his holy word. To get at the living water, to get at the streams of life, the very deep things, we're only going to find those in the Bible. Without the word of God, we cannot know God. Try it, you can't. Nor can we know ourselves, because we are known of God, because of Christ in us. The Spirit of God at work in us always is the Spirit of knowledge. Now we come to (laughs) self-control. This is everyone's easiest uh, one, right? To attain, from anger to donuts. (laughs) We struggle with it all, right? And we see demonstrated in Abraham's life that he was able to keep his temper under control with all the irritations going on around him. And let's be here on, let let me be really clear about self-control here. I I don't want this to be misunderstood in in any way. There's a type of self-control that says, just wait, my time is coming. I won't say anything now, but just wait. We'll straighten things out later. But this is not what the Spirit produces. 
Spirit-given self-control says, before you speak in irritation, remember you belong to God. That he is the Lord of your life. And that you must, and whatever you say, whatever you do, must always reflect him. Therefore, God-control results in self-control. Now, to self-control, we are to add steadfastness, which could also be another word for uh, patience. Again, one of our favorite words, right? Now, have you ever noticed that God doesn't give patience? He teaches it. And if you're inclined to pray for patience, then remember that to teach you patience it's probably going to send you trials and tribulation. And it's not a bad thing to pray for. I'm not saying that. Because through the trials and through our tribulations, we grow. Everything that God does for us is good, always has a good outcome, always has a divine outcome that's according to his will and his purposes. So go ahead and pray for patience. <laughs> Look back at Abraham uh, waiting 25 years for a son. The promise had been given, but he waited 25 long years before that promise was fulfilled. But sometimes we're, we're like the small child. He's banging his cup on the table demanding more milk. Some of these young children understand this. And, uh, you know, we say to the child, just have patience. And the child says, I have patience. I just don't have my cup of milk. Right? We're like that a little bit, aren't we? Then to patience, add godliness. So what is godliness? I would submit that godliness is simply the sense of God in our daily life. Abraham was the man with the tent and the altar. He always built an altar everywhere he went. He viewed God as his intimate friend. God viewed Abraham in the same way. Abraham knew God. This is what godliness is. In 1 Corinthians 10, we see the phrase, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So then godliness is a conscience, consciousness of his presence and our intentional living at his altar. To godliness, we add brotherly affection. Uh, I think this is just simply... You know, sharing of self and hospitality, maybe encouraging one another. Maybe it can look like inviting someone over for dinner just to give them a word of encouragement or, or something to strengthen them. And I guess you could say this would be a practical manifestation of, of the Spirit. So then, this is the fruitful life. Life started strong and finished strong. If we keep reading in, in uh, uh, if we go to chapter 8 through 11 in, in uh, Second Peter there, he goes on to say, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, oh, so they're supposed to increase, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. 
Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So now Abraham's come to the end of his life. To this abundant entrance into the kingdom of the Father. And in Genesis 25, we have seen that not only is this a life of abundant fruitfulness, but the next few verses uh, make it clear that it's a life of practical foresight. If you read, uh, if we go back to 5 and 6 in, in Genesis 25. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living with them, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. You see, Abraham never forgot that Isaac was the son of promise and the divinely chosen heir. He was constantly on guard or alert, if you will, to protect the inheritance of God. He anticipated danger and made some provision for his sons so that they would not destroy what God was doing in his life. That's why he sent those other sons away, to protect Isaac. Holiness is, is, is sometimes defined as being simply set apart for God. We're set apart from God. We're set apart from the world. God protects his inheritance that he has given us by setting us apart from the world in the very same way. Now, we also must be alert to the sins in our life that would destroy what God has given us, our eternal inheritance. Isaac here is a picture of Christ in that Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, just as the father gives all that he has to the son. And I would just add to this, we need to guard our testimony. The words he sent them eastward to the east country is significant, I think. When Abraham first came into the land, he pitched his tent between Ai and Bethel, with Ai on the east and Bethel on the west. Ai means ruin, while Bethel means the house or place of God. You see, Isaac was given the inheritance in the west. While the other sons in, in the place of God, while the other sons were sent out into the east countries to the place of ruin. Perhaps here a picture of the natural life of the flesh, the life that we had from Adam. Abraham's life was also a full one. Verse 7 and 8 reads, these are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, a man full of years. Abraham chose God every minute in every situation. He lived 175 years, and every year was packed full, spiced with excitement, filled with challenge, rich in faith and blessings. Mark chapter 10 tells us that even when we leave our homes and family for the sake of the gospel, that we will receive a hundredfold from God, eternal life. 
So then there is the promise of a full life to those who live in the Spirit. We also see that Scripture tells us that Abraham was gathered to his people. Now, by no means did Abraham's life end 4,000 years ago. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew twenty-two thirty-two. When Jesus speaking said, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Abraham died. When we died, when we die as believers, we don't really die. We go on living eternally with God. And then Abraham didn't live a life asking God, why me? He lived a life of faith which declared loud and clear, I trust you and I depend on you for everything, Lord. All good questions uh, begin with the words who, why, what, when, where, and how. But some of us are stuck on the why word. Why, Lord, do I have to go through this suffering? Why do I need to forgive that person who's hurt me? Why do I need to obey when it's so hard? Why can't I just exercise my own free will in some things and obey you maybe in some of the other things? I mean, Lord, what possible harm could come from a little bit of leaven? I would say that these are the questions of someone not bearing fruit, not living in the full, rich life God desires for them, living according to the flesh and not according to the spirit, seeking to go east to the land of ruin instead of west to the place of God. Let's try another word while we're on it. The word what? What can I do in this suffering to bring glory to you, God? What is the Bible teaching me today, Lord? What does God want me to do in my interactions with others who don't know him? I like that one. But some of us have sadly adopted the earthly saying, don't ask for permission, just ask for forgiveness. You ever hear that? We go through life recklessly, allowing our Bibles to collect dust, forsaking the assembly of God's people, making a mockery of the gift of faith that costs God everything. For those here today who claim to be Christians, and for those who do not, let me tell you how it works. God calls us, he forgives us, he saves us, and he requires obedience from us because he is sovereign and he loves us. God gave us his son as a sacrifice for our sins, to suffer, than to die on a cross, that we might have eternal life. We were spiritually dead, but we were given the gift of faith to respond to his calling, to his choosing, with confession and repentance, proclaiming Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. 
If you're in either category, if you're in either category, I invite you to come down at the, end, at the conclusion of our service today and, and just speak to me or to speak to one of our elders so that we can come alongside side you and pray with you. If God is calling you, if, he's, if he's God is calling on your heart and, and, and you're not saved, don't tarry. Come down. And if you say you're a believer but you're not living the life of a believer, if you're mocking God, come down. Be restored. There's an old woodsman's proverb that says, a tree is best measured when it is down. And you can see how that would ring true with the challenge of measuring a tree while it's still standing. Try to measure a redwood tree like we have back in California. (laughs) Good luck. But But the same can be said when measuring someone's life. It's best not to try to measure someone's life while they're still living because their story is still unfolding. I'm glad nobody measured my life back in 1971 when I didn't know Christ. It wouldn't have been much of a measurement. But once the tree is down and their life is over, then we can measure the greatness with unquestioning accuracy. Why? Because God's word is the standard by which we measure. So let's step back just a second here. Let's take a look at, at the life of Abraham. Let's step back and try to take a measurement of the whole journey. And in doing this, we can see how Abraham's life becomes a model for our own lives. First, Abraham's example is worthy of our imitation. And, and don't get me wrong, we're, we're to imitate Christ. So I'm not, this is not some weird theology here. I guess we can compare uh, ourselves to life's, uh, Abraham's uh, example. So when he was called, he obeyed. It was faith that caused Abraham to obey God. He followed God by faith, not even knowing where he was going. Like Abraham, we need to learn to trust and obey as we make this journey step by step. Second, Abraham's example is worthy of our imitation because what was promised, he believed. Think about it. Whether living in a tent or on foreign soil or defying the odds of having a child in old age, Abraham believed God's promises. He took God at his word. We must learn to do the same. If God says something in his book, the Bible, then we must believe it, even if we don't understand it. Even in the face of the world lying to us, trying to convince us that man is wiser than God. Third, Abraham's example is worthy of our imitation because when he was tested, he trusted. It was by faith that Abraham offered Isaac to God as a sacrifice. What a hard test that must have been. I think Grady touched on that last week or the week before. Is there anyone here that could really say they would pass that test, honestly? 
Let me give you another way to think about it. Is there anyone here that if I came up to you and I said, hey, there's this guy on the other side of the world. I've got to watch where I walk. <laughs> uh, and the only way he's going to get saved is if you die for him. And you don't even know him. Would you give your life for that person? Tough question, right? Good thing we're not God. Good thing we have a God that did die for us. If we're going to be faithful on our journey with the Lord, we're going to have to trust him even during the hardest tests we have to face. And I don't think I have to spell out what those hardest tests include. We, we know them all too well. And they certainly do stretch our faith. That came up today. We were talking, I was talking with someone earlier. Their faith was being stretched. Right? And sadly, some abandon their faith when they, uh, when they face these circumstances. Now, on this part, I would say only that that has to be self-faith because only self-faith can be abandoned. Only self-faith can be abandoned. But a faith given by God when we are born again, it can never fail or never be abandoned. Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. And the Bible says so, and I believe it. Finally, Abraham's example is worthy of imitation because when he was blessed, he shared. Abraham became incredibly wealthy during his uh, journey with God. He became rich in land, cattle, camels, silver and gold. But Abraham didn't hoard it for himself. Rather, he shared his blessings with others along the way. So check it out. He gave a tenth to Melchizedek. He gave Lot the choice of the best land. He allowed his men who helped rescue Lot to keep the spoils and took none for himself. He helped many sons establish households. So here's a question. How good are we at passing along our blessings to others? You know, passing on our blessings to the spiritual needs of our church here. You know, Leonard talked about our giving pledge that the, uh, the elders here have asked you to participate in. Right? It's, it's no small thing, folks. And if you give it, you, we give out of joy, it says. But what we're really doing is we're blessing God. We're thanking God. We're praising God for all the blessings that he just, you know, bestows on us and just overwhelms us with sometimes. God desires that we pass along the blessings he gives us. Now, Abraham wasn't perfect. No one is except Jesus. But he did leave a very good example for us. And I'm kind of an applicational kind of guy when it comes to Scripture. So I want to share with you four simple, and I got this word from Grady, directives. <laughs> that summarize Abel, Abraham's formula for success. Number one, wherever God leads, Follow. Number two, whatever God promises, believe. Number three, 
Whenever God tests, trust. And finally, number four, however God blesses, share. In fact, Paul gives a wonderful epitaph concerning Abraham in Romans 4.20. He says, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. In conclusion, uh, folks, Abraham's life was the life of every Christian for all who walk in faith with Jesus Christ. Called to be his, to be possessed by him, to live as pilgrims and strangers on earth, then all the fruitfulness we could ever desire and the abundant full life in God's everlasting kingdom will be fulfilled in us to his praise and glory. Let us pray. Father, we cannot help but be touched and moved by how you worked in the life of your servant Abraham. Today as your adopted children, we, we claim this very same relationship. We thank you that we can do this in Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Thank you for showing us your divine giving and that all is made available in Jesus Christ. Thank you for showing us the picture of life well begun and well finished. We pray if there is any here today that have not yet begun this journey, that they will begin where Abraham began, began with the calling of God and then yielding to the claims of Jesus Christ. And that the rest of us, Lord, may take courage from the account we have heard here before us, pressing on in the circumstances put there to grow us and to sanctify us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.